0: Isn't the sound on this, eh? Pretty good, right? We're getting there. It's only taken a year, two years. I don't want to blame it all on COVID. I mean, some of it was probably the vaccine. I don't want to blame it all on Brexit. I mean, some of it was probably the astroturfing second referendum campaign. I don't want to blame it all on Russia. Because some of it was probably Israel. I don't want to blame it all on anti-Semitism. Because some of it was probably free broadband. So, anyway, this is a one-off episode, a special, an interview, an interview special, with Joe Attard, who's just made his own podcast, to rival just as we were getting going. Bloody another podcast comes along, called International Marxist Radio, and he's going to put it out every week, like a fucking try-hard. I despair, I really do. (laughs) Anyway, the first episode came out Wednesday just gone, Give it a listen. You can find it on all the usual podcasty places, Spotify, etc. But not right now. First, listen to this interview. Hello, 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 Joe Attard. Nice to see you.
1: Hello, hello. It's very good to be here.
0: This is the, the first time we've ever spoken, right?
1: It is, although I feel like we have spoken or that we've met because we seem to cross paths digitally. So
0: often, yeah. So we've we've met uh, online on Twitter. We've had a few conversations, and I've seen you. I've seen you a few times. I've seen you. Uh, well, I saw you at Labour conference, not live, but I saw the uh, the video of you giving your speech into in twenty twenty one. That's where yeah. you first caught my attention. Uh, but I've actually seen you speak at a event in Houston about a year ago. Really? And, what was that? What,
1: what, what was what was that?
0: Well, I'm a Labour member and so it was definitely not a socialist appeal event. I can tell you that much.
1: Yeah. Uh if it was a year ago, then um that uh will be mutually exclusive, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh right. Well is that the case? Yeah, okay. Um well yeah, you were speaking about uh Bi- Biden, I think. Or maybe Trump. Yes, that's right. 20-20.
1: So it, it 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 was a socialist appeal event. I think that was our Revolution Festival. And that's I right. Was, yeah. And I but it wasn't socialist appeal
0: because I was there. All right. Where uh, I moved as I was oh, moving I through see, the crowd, I it, like the socialist appealness, just well, the appeal <laughs> fell away. I think. Yeah, the, but... the,
1: the, the 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 socialism and the appeal remains, even if <laughs> the socialist appeal was at least officially uh, dissipating. But no, no, the, that that I remember was the Revolution Festival. I was speaking about uh, Joe Biden, and I have to say, when I gave that speech, Joe Biden was riding high on this big spending package. I think that some of the illusions that you know had been built up in the elections against Trump. the ruling class had started to, you know, infect even certain layers of the left. I found myself having debates with people in my, you know, the circle of left wing Labour and former Labour members from Ealing, people saying, oh, well, I know that he's not that impressive, but uh, maybe he'll come good. Um, But I think that the last year has uh, only made our criticisms of Biden come out more strongly.
0: Do you think there's a lesson to be learned there with a certain Labour leader?
1: Well, I mean, frankly, in many respects, um, Starmer is pitching himself even more aggressively opposed to the left than Biden. Uh, I mean, Biden, okay, admittedly, the um, the so-called squad, the Democrats, um, so-called progressive wing have entirely, um, you know, submitted themselves to the will of the right wing Um, and and to the capitalist interest represented by the DNC. But nevertheless, um, Biden um, has made a show of tolerating the so-called progressives in his own party, and there's been no such accommodation by by Stammer, which was no surprise to me, because the point is, A, the Democrats are not a left-wing party, they're not a workers' party. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, socialists should have nothing to do with the Democrats. But also... Um, even though to a certain extent the, the movement around Bernie Sanders it expressed a similar thing to the Corbyn movement in America in, in an American context, insofar as there was this hunger and appetite for an alternative that didn't have a political expression, and there was a big movement of young people behind Bernie Sanders when he ran in the primaries but obviously for a a a bourgeois party ultimately so there were certain comparisons but it was much more severe from the perspective of the ruling class in britain With the left wing of the Labour Party because um, Jeremy Corbyn did win the leadership he held the leadership for several years and he came pretty close to being elected prime minister in 2017 and for that reason because of how spooked the ruling class was by how close they came to really losing control of the situation altogether, uh, Starmer who is their agent in the Labour Party and that really should have been obvious from the beginning He has a job to do, and that is making an example of the left, not just defeating and ostracizing the left, but burying and toxifying their reputation, completely crushing and demoralizing them so that there's no prospect of a left wing revival within the Labour Party for the foreseeable. And that's a task he's carrying out with even more aplomb than um, the the right wing Democrats in the states. I think it's because the left got closer to power.
0: Right. I see. Cause I think you could argue the, the other way and I'll be interested to see what you think about that. So one of the things with Biden was he had to sort of posture, of uh, partly I think because, uh, of what was happening in his own party with, um, the return of Sanders and that movement w- was, you know, that movement was seen as still probably seen as something that could have won against Trump in the initial election. Right. Whereas Corbyn, and, you know, I don't want to go into it all right now, but he did lose the election. And that, for from people who are not so engaged, that in, in itself is the sort of red line of politics. If you can't win the election, then, you know, you, don't, you no longer should be leader. And in some regards, you know, for a lot of people, that sh- that shows that your your agenda, whatever it might be, it's not politically viable, right? So there's a sort of easier job there for Starmer to sort of criticize the left, whereas Biden had to admit that there was something to the Sanders campaign, and he had to work with that. The other thing I would say is he was up against Trump. It seems increasingly likely that Starmer's going to sail in against nobody in particular, who knows yes. he'll be leader of the Conservative Party at that point, but it's going to be a totally broken party and, and a party with, without really any movement behind it at all.
1: I think that you're right and you're wrong, in my, yeah. uh, in my <laughs> opinion, because one of the big differences between the situation that Starmer and um well, Starmer also lied. He also posed left Um, True. as Mike Gapes has recently been bragging to the likes of Owen Jones. He genuflected to the left in order to win the leadership election, you know, the 10 pledges I'm going to be Corbyn, but electable. Uh, and I think that, reflected the balance of forces that even though um, Labour was coming off off this very bad defeat under Corbyn, the majority of the membership were left-wing. And it was necessary for Starmer to pitch himself in that direction. Now, what should have happened is that the leaders of the left at the time, I'm talking about the leaders of the the unions, um, I'm talking about momentum, I'm talking about the likes of... Um, John McDonnell, um, the people who were the leading lights of the Corbyn movement should have sounded the alarm at that point. They should have said, look, if you actually pay any attention to this guy's background, if you look into the people who are funding his campaign and the amount of money they're investing in this campaign, it's clear that he's a Blairite uh, stooge whose only task is to bring the Labour Party back under the control of the ruling class. Um, but nobody did. And obviously the left was demoralized and disorientated by the defeat in 2019 and the fact that Corbyn immediately took the fall and promised to resign, which he shouldn't have done, in my opinion. But that's by the by. Um, and, and and having done that, then he, uh, you know, Starmer immediately turned on, the, turned on the left. He got rid of Rebecca Long-Bailey, kicked all the left wingers out of his shadow cabinet and... Not even gradually, got quite rapidly moved aggressively to the right and made it clear where he where he really stood. And that's been, you know, the the case ever since. Um and, and you know, Biden to a certain extent, yeah, he had to accommodate the fact that there was a certain movement around people like Bernie Sanders, and more to the point, there's a desire for an alternative in the American um context as well. You know, millions. Um, of young people, tens of millions of workers in the States are fed up with both of the main parties, Um, benefited from the fact that uh, a lot of people wanted to get rid of Trump, of course. But he had an easier ride in part because... There was, you know, <laughs> there's no doubt in anybody's minds uh, that the Democrats are an establishment party. I think they actually served, um, you know, they ultimately serve the same interests. They both serve capitalist interests in their respective contexts. Uh, I think that, you know, in Biden's case, the fact that it was a very polarized election, the fact that people were really fed up with Trump, um, obviously helped. The lack of a viable alternative obviously helped. Um, so I, I think that um, there's not a great deal of political difference between the likes of um, Biden and Starmer. The only difference that I can see is, A, they're not dealing with a workers' party in the States. You know, Democrats are a, are a capitalist party. And B, um, the, the ruling class um, you know, who stand behind um, Biden... Didn't have to make such an example of of the of the left of the Democrats because they didn't pose as great of a threat to their interests. They didn't get anywhere near power, and even if they did, they're still tied to a capitalist party. So I think that explains the difference. I well, remember at the time you had a couple of things like 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 what is called uh, James Meadway, uh, Corbyn's old speechwriter, saying that oh um, Starmer could learn from how Biden has behaved in the States because he accommodated the left and he's doing much better, but it doesn't really bear comparison. um,
0: Well, I like that. I like the optimism there. That The reason that Starmer has to be so sort of militantly anti-left is because there is is still a threat, I suppose, is what you're saying. Maybe not within the party, but within British politics.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, even though to a certain extent, the, the ruling class and their agents should be delighted because they brought the you know both of the main parties back under their control actually and this is the other thing you have a situation for many years where both the Tories and the Labour Party slipped out of the grasp of the main powers of the establishment out mm-hmm. of the the serious wing of the British ruling class they evaded their control you had the you know the far right swivel eyed Brexit here you know Petty bourgeois lunatics um, taking over the, the Tory Party, uh, who you know weren't carrying out policies that represented the broad view of British capitalism. You know, Boris Johnson. Am I allowed to swear on the show? By the way, yeah. Uh, Boris Johnson famously said "fuck business" in regards to CBI opposing Brexit, um, and they also lost control of the Labour Party because it had a left-wing leader who had millions of. Um, young people and, and radical workers behind him, who uh, were 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 inspired by at least the notion of socialism. That was a terrifying prospect. And now you could say that things are looking up for the um, British establishment because they've got their man in charge of the Tory Party. You know, Ishi Sunak was not elected; he was imposed by by the markets essentially, with no mandate whatsoever. Mm-hmm. From the country or his party. Um, but they finally got rid of um, you know, the um sort of the the hardline Brexiteer wing. Um this trust was done away with pretty quickly. And they got rid of Johnson as well. Uh and they have Keir Starmer in charge of the Labour Party, who couldn't be a more suitable um, you know, lickspittle for the establishments. But they still have to contend with rising class militancy, you've got a bigger wave of strikes happening simultaneously potentially in the next year than in many decades, probably since the 1970s, uh, and you've got the deepest, I would say, the deepest and most profound crisis of capitalism and especially British capitalism, which is faring badly even compared to other countries, um, to contend with, and there is still uh, the, this illusion of stability because of the reassertion of control over the political parties, the two main parties, uh, by the you know the the main interest of British capitalism. I think that's a bit of a, a bit of an illusion because the reality is whoever's in charge, whether it's the Tories or a right wing Labour Party, they're going to contend with an unprecedented mood of anger. People are gonna to have to go out and fight. People are gonna go, have to go out and strike and organize just to stand still, just to keep their heads above water. When inflation hits 10, 11%, unless you can win a 10, 11% pay rise through strike action, dragging that out of your employer, then you're you're eating a massive pay cut. And you know this is the reality that either party is going to oversee. So there is still a threat. I think the Corbyn movement, in my opinion, has been completely routed. I don't think it poses any significant threats to the interests of the ruling class at this point at all. Um, what do you mean by what do
0: you mean by the Corbyn movement?
1: So the political left of the Labour Party, the you know the, the activists who organised around Jeremy Corbyn, I think that that's been put back in the box for the uh, for the time being. I'm not saying it couldn't be revived. You know, it could well be that. If there is a big strike wave in the next year or two, um, and there's rising militancy and anger on the industrial front, that could put some pressure on the Labour Party, and it might see a a revival of the left uh, follow. That's That's not impossible, in my opinion, but I don't see it happening in the short term. I think that's... That movement has has been pretty roundly defeated, and frankly, I, I I think that the the leaders of that movement only have themselves to blame because that didn't need to happen. There were many opportunities to avert that uh, that defeats. But anyway, um,
0: yeah, that- well, there's definitely more and more coming out about what was going on in the leadership office, mm-hmm. um, and it's yeah, it is it sounds very very self defeating, almost from the beginning, in a way. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I don't know how much you knew at the time. I mean, for me, I was just caught up in the whole hysteria, I suppose, around just having someone that was half decent as Labour leader, and I. It was only later going back when you started to follow who, and you know, in a way, you know, it's who Corbyn brought in. Did he bring in the right people? Uh, on the, on the face of it, it looked like he brought in. Well, he brought in. Brett, that's the thing. It's based on what? Based on who? based on any other sort of labor leadership, they were much better people. But were they the best people? Were they the right people? Uh, when we look back and you see, you know, particularly look at Momentum's leadership, but also people working within Corbyn's office, and you see that the way that they handled some of the early attacks and the way that they decided to basically buy into some of the narratives that were only being produced to destroy the movement you can see it sort of falling apart very early on although it didn't become obvious to me until years later
1: i think there were a few decisive turning points and look i, I i'm not um i'm not a pessimist uh, this is something that i talk about on the first episode of the new podcast i'm hoping to plug later
0: Oh, I'm yeah, not... yeah, we're going to talk about podcasts, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah no, I'm, not,
1: I'm, not, I'm not rushing you, just, but just just to say, uh, I, I'm not a pessimist. Um, I sometimes feel that Marxists are the only optimists in politics, let alone just on the left. I think that the Corbyn movement didn't have to be defeated, and I think that you're never going to have perfect people <laughs> at, the, at the head of a movement like that, because ultimately we're dealing with reformists, and with the greatest one in the world, um, from my point of view reformists will always be striving for a nicer, fairer, kinder version of the system we have rather than a full and total revolutionary break with capitalism in favour of socialism. And that means they're always going to tend to vacillate. They're always going to tend to accommodate themselves. Uh, and and Corbyn did, you know, and, and and people in his office tried to do precisely that. They they tried to make nice with the the Blairite saboteurs time and time again. In my opinion, the real, obviously Brexit was was what did for them in the end, really. But the 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 real um, turning points, I think, uh, the major Rubicon was when Open Selection was shut down. Um, by the trade union block vote in 2018, with I think the support of certainly John McDonnell and a few others in, in Corbyn's office. Um, I think
0: the, I, I think with the support of Corbyn.
1: I think eventually, but my understanding is that he might have um, he might have been in favour of, of of letting members decide about their. Oh, I think of he
0: was, but he he came out as it yes, were he, 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 he gave the, the the green light or whatever or the red light as it were
1: i think that's right but that came as a result of continued pressure from yeah. people in his office
0: uh but anyway that, that that's by the by precisely anyway yeah let's talk about podcasts we can come back yeah. to this yeah, sure, sure, uh, sure. this this is a podcast in theory anyway and uh, we've, we've been doing it for about a year now although it's uh-huh. mostly youtube videos and then we put it up as a podcast and people don't listen to it as a podcast so i remind everybody Please listen to this as a podcast. There's an ongoing war between myself and Heather about whether this is a YouTube show or a podcast. And I want it to be a podcast, partly because I just don't want to use video because it's it's just so much easier to, to put something up as an audio file. Anyway, you, this is a podcast. I want to talk about the trials and tribulations of podcasting. You've just started a podcast today. The okay. first episode came out. I was just listening to it before we started chatting. And I just want to talk to you about... Uh, how how was it starting a podcast?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I, I got to put you on the spot. Uh, what did you think?
0: I thought it was pretty good. i have pretty to good. Say. I'll I, take that. If you I'll want some, I'll give you some real criticism. All right. You, I think you've got. I, I look at you on Twitter a lot, and you you do some pretty cool tweets. Pretty cool. <laughs> it's quite funny. Like it's as cool like tweets. you're not like. I, I think a lot of left wing content is quite dry. Uh-huh. And I think when I saw that you were hosting a podcast, I was like, oh, that'd be quite good because you're, I think, someone who, yeah, you can make stuff a little bit more interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm just I just don't find <laughs> I don't find uh, politics interesting. I have to make it funny. Uh-huh. Uh, I know. It's, so like, yeah, I thought maybe you could do more of that going forward, I would say. Uh-huh. But and once well- the conversation once got into the conversation, so you had Alan Woods on. And it was an interesting conversation you're talking about. Uh, I just stopped when you talk about Ukraine, which I was yes. really interested to hear what you're going to say about that. One thing that uh, I think started at the beginning of the episode, Alan Wood said there will be a worldwide recession in 2023. Quite a bold claim for a brand new podcast. I don't want to say that your podcast now hinges on that being the case, but um What do you, yeah, what let's talk about uh, predictions for 2023, both in terms of the world, the UK, and your own podcast?
1: Sure. Well, um, I don't think that Alan stands alone in making that claim. I, I think he says, in the context of that discussion, that the IMF has predicted that a third of the world will be in recession within 2023, Britain's already in recession they've tried to wriggle out of declaring a recession a couple of times by changing the definition. Um, right. Of, so of, there you of, go. So we'll, we don't
0: have to be in recession, you see. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Really, <laughs> really the, sometimes a recession is just the friends you make along the way. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I don't think that it's an unreasonable prediction uh so if that is what the podcast hinges on
0: in addition to my my winning well you can uh, always change the the definition to suit you that's the great thing well in our definition we are in a recession so there you go exactly
1: um so in terms of predictions i i don't think that's an unreasonable one um obviously the well for a start if you look at the British situation, the Bank of England, is engineering a recession in order to try and bring inflation back under control. So that's a foregone conclusion. Uh, it's clear, and we make this point on the show, that the ruling class all over the world has learned precisely nothing from the last global recession. They're making a lot of the same mistakes. So uh, I don't mind putting putting a few chips on that particular, particular prediction. Um, as far as how I think the show will go... Obviously, I hope it's a, a stonking success and I can boot Rory Stewart and Alistair um, Campbell off the top of the politics podcast podium. Yeah,
0: cause... so I said to you before on Twitter, I was saying to you, well, you know, in preparation for our conversation, we need to really listen to some podcasts. And, the, you know, the be all and end all podcast at the moment is Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart. Uh, it's called something like Everything Else is Politics or something. Yeah. And I'd never listened to it before. Neither had you. But I went home at Christmas. And I don't know if you had the same sort of experience. People, like family members and stuff, were like, oh, you do a podcast, don't you, Daniel? Uh, well, have you heard this one? This is a really good one. Why don't you... It's like, yeah, uh, it's not quite exactly what we're going for. But yeah. I did give it a listen. And, uh, yeah, it was it was fucking awful, to be honest. It was It's like... It's got that this that insidious kind of centrist. Uh, you talk about socialist appeal. It's that centrist appeal, yeah. which is like, here's two people that like completely agree, with completely one agree another. on everything. But then at the same time, that the whole idea about their politics is that you have to be empowering, and we got to get the other people out. We there's this there's this weird sort of disconnect where like on the one hand it but you know what's great about sort of centrist politics and starmer and stuff is that they, they can actually work with other parties and they can work with the tories but at the same time we've got to get the tories out because we absolutely hate them even though we can't distinguish any any difference between the two uh, and i still a lot of the comments about it is it's this sort of wistful oh if only we could go back to a time of politics when it was like this, this sort of civil debate that Campbell and Stewart appear to be having. And as you were saying before, like, you know, that, that time of politics, yes, we're, we're sort of trying to bring back politicians, Starmer and Sunak, and the sort of rhetoric of that time. But when you look at what's happening in the country, it's just, it just has no kind of reflection of, of where people are.
1: Yeah, I think that it's two things. First of all, the reason that the likes of Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell can have a civil discussion and not have any major recriminations is because they don't disagree with each other, as far as I can see, about essentially anything. At best, it's a question of style. Um, it, it, it's whether the managers of the interests of capitalism wear a red tie or a blue one, as far as I can tell. So there's that. Well, it's about to it. who's so,
0: more competent. And right, precisely. Stuart always thinks that the Tory is more competent, and Campbell thinks that the Labour person is more competent. But yes, they're basically both vying to do the same job, pull yeah. the same levers, and it's who can pull it in a, Yeah, as you say, in the nicer tie.
1: It, it's partly that. But as you say, another aspect to this is no matter how much the centrist dads of the world might long for a time when. You know you're talking about um, whether you're five degrees different from from this mythical center ground the center has been swallowed by the polarization of politics under an unprecedented capitalist crisis when things are basically okay then most people first of all won't have any opinion about politics because as you say it's usually boring it's full of the worst people you could possibly imagine uh, there are much more interesting things to talk about uh, in normal times, and as long as the system that we have appears to be providing at least a, a decent existence for people, you can be reasonably confident that you're going to be able to pay your rent and send your kids to school and get a pension. Then, then why bother yourself with uh, all of this? Um, you know. Well, minutia- I think... political debates, but 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 we now have a situation where people are literally struggling to survive where you have a generation that's only known capitalism in a state of crisis and decline. And inevitably the establishment, the the center ground is associated with a system that can't provide for people, that is increasingly despised. And as a consequence, the the, the class differences in society begin to reassert themselves. And that's where the, the conflict comes from. I mean, what drives me... Uh, A little bit potty listening to podcasts like um, like this one is, as you say, this uh, platitude of, oh, well, it's not fair to dehumanize people. It's all just a matter of opinion. Uh, Why can't we just accept that Tories think this and that Labour supporters think this? No, actually, no. The politics that both these people espouse have material consequences for working class people, for poor people, for young people. To speak from a position where you are a well-paid establishment stooge living in a mansion, enjoying your MPs or former MPs' salary, um, you're... You know, isolated from the reality that forces ordinary families, whether they're going to heat their homes or feed their children, then yeah, sure, <laughs> you can treat your uh, your sparring partner like this is all just a genteel matter of of, of, of disagreement on the particulars of uh, of political philosophy. But the reality for for most people is that the policies that the Tories are carrying out and the policies that the right wing of the Labour Party have promised to carry out in terms of cuts and austerity to public services, Starmer saying he's not going to open the checkbook, that means misery for the majority of people. That's where the acrimony comes from. That's where the hatred comes from. So I'm sorry. That politics is nasty. I'm sorry that people don't like you, right? If, uh, but 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 that's why it's not just a question of debate; it's a question of well, to live reality for millions of people.
0: The trick is that what what they do is sort of frame it as in the reason that things are so fucked up is yeah. because the politics is fucked up. And if we can get back to a more civilized politics of nothing, of nothingness, of, of basically sort of a, yeah, platitudes, a little bit of rhetoric, but no real actual political debate. If we can get back to that, then somehow the country will also kind of reflect that rather than it being the other way around, rather than it being we've been plunged into crisis. And therefore, as a result, of that you're seeing that being reflected in our politics, in people looking elsewhere, looking away from the main parties looking away from the old ideas. That's the trick I feel that they play, is that if we can get back to a sort of Blair-type leader, Mm -hmm. then the country will somehow get back to a, a, I don't know, a sort of 90s revival, yeah, sort of post-Thatcherism economic state, which, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but I think that's how people feel.
1: Well, I think it's how they feel.
0: Uh, it's never how they feel.
1: <laughs> I don't know whether it's how everybody feels. I mean, I'm a Marxist. As far as I'm concerned, politics is demonstrably just a social expression of economic interests. In the 90s, you had a period of recovery, as it turns out, artificial recovery based on debt and credit, largely, but nevertheless, that was the material basis for Blairism for the so-called third way. It could say, well, things are getting a bit better. The winter discontent is over. The Soviet Union has collapsed. The minor strike is done. Uh, these, these are all the battles of the past. From now on, all we need is sensible technocratic administrators to just tweak the levers of state a little bit, make sure that things don't totally um, you know, hit the fan and everything will continue to get better and better and better. Things going only get better is that insufferable song um, went. d Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, what's, what's, he, what's he called, that that gob- Brian scientist? Cox. Jeez, I hate that guy. I, abs- I, I This is a pet peeve, but I absolutely despise Brian Cox. I think he's a complete charlatan. But that, that, I won't get into that. There are, there are political and scientific reasons for that, but I won't get into it.
0: Anyway. Oh right. Oh well. I know. And, I'm interested and, now.
1: Well, well, maybe in a minute. But but but, but anyway, the. But, But the reality, of course, is that politics is first and foremost an expression of of, of the state of the system we live under. And capitalism is, is in crisis. And it's in crisis for reasons that flow directly from the rules of that system. No matter what you do to it, no matter how you tweak it, whether you spend more, whether you spend less, whether you cut, whether you invest, ultimately... You can't avert the tendency towards crisis that uh, that exists under capitalism. If you really want to improve people's lives in in perpetuity, then ultimately you need to do away with it. Um, and and because these these reformists, you know, the liberals through to the the right wing um, laborites through to the you know, so called moderate Tories. What, what the the, the reformists of, of, of one shade or another, what they fail to understand is that ultimately, the ruling class of any given system, of any time in history, it gets the political leaders it deserves. The reason that the political leadership of the capitalists in one country after another today is hopeless is because that in of itself is an expression of the sickness of the system. That's an expression of the fact that uh, capitalism as a system has run into uh, a historic impasse. It's not putting forward its A-team. It's putting forward its most backward, self-interested, venal, and hopeless leaders because the system itself is senile and decaying.
0: Well, so- okay, there's there's a, it's a, something I think that people find a little bit confusing there is, mm. so on the one hand, that is the sort of Uh, left-wing position uh to be yeah it's it's an anti-capitalist position right but then Mm -hmm. you know most of the left got behind corbyn right and he in the end i mean the policies he was putting forward I, i i was obviously a big supporter of corbyn they were in effect policies that should be coming from a functioning democratic process right within a sort of reformist idea of 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 how to deal with capitalism right so yeah. i i feel like and I you know i was i think a lot of people were surprised most most importantly the people within the labor party within the labor right that particularly certain aspects of the left that never really engaged in parliamentary politics got 100 percent behind corbyn and i think that's interesting i mean i think it's the right thing to do but i think people find that Uh, a little bit of a contradiction that you're anti-capitalist, but then whatever Corbyn's personal views were, the the platform he was running on was just a reformist platform.
1: Yes, it was. I mean, Corbyn, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see, is not a Marxist. He's certainly not a revolutionary. He's a left-wing reformist. And you're absolutely right. What he was proposing actually was just a bit more spending. Um, What he was proposing, really, was Keynesianism of an order that's quite a lot lower than what Rishi Sunak was doing during the pandemic, for example. But I've been in the Labour Party, well, I'm expelled now, but I joined the Labour Party when I was a teenager. And I'm firmly of the view that revolutionaries should stand shoulder to shoulder with the working class fighting for every reform that can be won. Marxists aren't opposed to reforms. On the contrary, We fight for every reform that can be won under the system we have. We just believe that in order to prevent the the bosses from taking back with the left hand what they give with the right, you need ultimately to fight the roots of where the attacks come from. And that, in our view, is the, the needs of the capitalist system and the need to maintain profits over the long run. And the most important thing about Corbyn, it wasn't the particulars of this program. I mean, there were things in this program which I absolutely 100% support is, you know, uh, free education from cradle to grade, protecting the MHS, um, a program of house building, a green industrial revolution, this sort of thing. But I wouldn't say that my support for Corbyn and that Socialist Appeal support for Corbyn was ever uncritical. Every, we, we did support Corbyn um, and, and we think that was the right thing to do. But every single article and every single speech and every single intervention we made in the Labour Party and about the Labour Party made the point that Corbyn would be blocked at every stage by the capitalists and their agents, both within the party and without. And if he ever got to power, they would try to bring him down before allowing him to carry out, even as you say, what was in the grand scheme of things, not uh, by certainly not a revolutionary socialist programme. And in order to carry out even those reforms, he would need to go further than he realized. He would need to lean on the real source of his power at the time, which was the the mass movement behind him. And that's really what scared the ruling class, not Corbyn himself uh, and and not the reforms he was proposing. Uh, It was the movement behind him and the fear that Corbyn would be swept further to the left should he get to power, Um, by the the support base that he built up, who were explicitly inspired not by, you know, whether you're going to spend this hundred billion or this hundred billion on this or that public service, but by socialism, by the idea of a fundamental transformation in society. Um, So so I think that's how you square the circle, really. Um, How could I, as a Marxist, how could anyone as a socialist not see Jeremy Corbyn being, Cheered and, and and applauded by tens of thousands of people at Glastonbury, talking about socialism, talking about the you know need to to dispossess the billionaires and, and this sort of thing. Uh, not see the Corbyn movement at its height and recognise its significance and support it. What but support it critically while pointing out that even those reforms which are not sufficient, in my opinion, would not be permitted by the bosses were he actually to get to power. And I think that the way that it all it all shook out. Uh, bears out that perspective. He wasn't even allowed to 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 present that that package of reforms. Um, and, and that's how Marxists, that's how socialists should relate to a movement like the Gorbin movement, um, you know, where a, a left reformist talking about socialism becomes a point of expression for the aspirations of tens of billions of people. And um, that was the attitude that, that we brought to it.
0: Okay. Great. Um, yeah, I th- I think I think I would broadly agree with that. But I want to get back. <laughs> we've been speaking for so long already. I want to get back to the podcasts. Mm. Uh, yeah. Your so your podcast first episode came out today. Yes. Um, is it going to be a weekly podcast? What's the What's the goal with that?
1: Yeah, it's a weekly show. Uh, this first episode is a brief retrospective on some of the main developments um, that have brought us up to this point and a look forward to what we can expect in 2023 Um, alan makes a few predictions we talk about the things that make us optimistic about um, the situation going forward particularly the rising strike wave uh, in britain and that you see replicated elsewhere and episodes will come out every week every wednesday with a different subject, a different speaker. Sometimes the topics will be theoretical or historical. Sometimes we'll be looking at the news from a Marxist perspective. But, uh, yeah, it's a weekly show. Who um, can
0: uh, who can we expect to have on, or is that a secret?
1: Uh, well, it's not a secret. It's just that that's still something of an open question. Um, and our first batch of speakers will obviously be some of our leading activists, because that's who we have to hand, Um because you know the whole point of this podcast ultimately is to provide our analysis and and perspective in audio form. But I we've got an open hand and an open invitation to people from the the wider movements if they think they have something worth saying um and they want to be on the show then we're we're, we're open to proposals.
0: Okay, I might propose some people to you. Flood your DMs. By all means. Uh, who, um, speaking more broadly about podcasts, how was it making the podcast? Did you find it difficult? What platform do you use? Is some? I mean, I, I can talk about my issues, but uh, yeah, I think it'd be interesting because I, I would like to talk about this for people, other people to make podcasts. It isn't that difficult, mm. but there are a few things that you need to get in place. Like, how, mm. do you use a hosting platform to just put it on all of the different things this podcast uses acast mm-hmm. which i don't recommend using because they oh, put really? their they put a thing at the end of all your descriptions saying this is brought to you by acast and uh... you can't edit you can't actually have full control even though you're paying for it and i also don't think acast really want to be associated with us publicly i wouldn't imagine maybe they do who knows mm.
1: So we have an RSS feed set up, and we publish everything through a WordPress site, and it goes to, at the moment, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Um, as I say, I'm I'm new to this whole gig, so I'll let you know how it's going. Perhaps once I've done a few episodes, um, on the technical side of things, yeah, it it, it it's been fairly straightforward. Um, I'm interested to see what the results are like. As far as putting the show together goes, um, it was... I mean, I, I got a bit of a background in uh, recording music, and weirdly, I found this a bit more difficult because once you just got the the voice, um, it, there's nothing to hide behind. So every little audio artifact was driving me up the wall. Um, I'm sure that um, there's room to improve there, and um, I'm open to feedback from, from our listeners. No, it, sound, it
0: sounded great. Where did you record it?
1: We recorded it in our office. Uh, we, okay. we, we have a little, a little media suite, uh, I, I I use a combination of Cubase and Audacity. Um, yeah, and, uh, I use I-
0: Audacity. It's pretty good for mm. if you do end up having some problems post recording, you can get rid of them quite easily. Right. Uh, yeah. That's. But yeah, finding a, a suitable space. I'm I'm sitting in my living room here, which has a wooden floor. It's all hard surfaces. It's mm. a total nightmare. Uh, I'll. I we're not going to put the video up, so I was just going to show you something. But I've got I've got a piece of like. Um, I'll show you, Joe, but no one else can see it. This is like a piece of sort of insulation stuff that I just put on the table and I put the mic on top of that. But like just little things like that. It is is a bit of a trial and tribulation when you first get going. But I think think making podcasts, it is pretty simple. And I wish there were more people. I mean, it's hard to find. I'm sure there are lots of people out there that do make podcasts. Mm. Um, It's just hard to find where they are and it's hard to promote them. That's why I think YouTube is quite good. Have you got a YouTube channel?
1: We do have a YouTube channel for Marxist.com. We haven't launched the podcast on YouTube yet. Our British sister site, Socialist Appeal, or Socialist.net, I should say, have a YouTube channel where I think they publicize their podcast as well. Um, So maybe we should take a leaf out of their book and do the same. It's interesting what you were saying earlier, actually, about um, the disagreements that you and Heather have about whether the show should be primarily YouTube based or or a podcast, because I came to your show through YouTube. You very kindly put my Labour conference speech um, as your favourite speech of that conference. Not that there was a huge amount of competition, uh, I have to say.
0: (laughs) Well, it's a very esteemed uh, award. It's only been given once. It was only given in 2021. We don't give it every year oh well I, I didn't really pay attention to 2022 that's so that's why nobody got it
1: yeah um well i i i think that um the the pickings might get even slimmer going forward but <laughs> but by the by um yeah i i i i, I oh, and then i did that um i did that uh version of the phil oak song Love Me i'm a liberal that you put on one of your uh youtube um, shows as well which is which is very nice of
0: you um yeah you do get a lot more traction through youtube because yeah. it actually gets put out to people whereas People have actively got to find the podcast. That's the issue with that.
1: Right, I, I think I think that's right. Um, so it's something that we'll, we'll definitely bear in mind. Um, I think we wanted to just launch at a certain level with a bit of a, a minimum viable product and see how it went down. Um, and then we'll, we'll develop it from there. But uh, it's been a very interesting process learning how to do this um, and, and, and putting it all together. But uh, yeah, maybe YouTube is the next frontier for International Marxist Radio. But for now, as I say, it's uh, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Uh,
0: Can I quickly just ask you also what other podcasts do you listen to?
1: So I don't listen to a lot of left-wing podcasts, funnily enough. I listen to The Economist's podcast um, because I like to hear what the the enemy is saying. Uh, Genuinely, it's useful to listen to serious bourgeois analysis because they give you the unvarnished perspective of the the ruling class and that's useful. Um, Beyond that, I listen to um, lots of historical podcasts. I really like uh, Mike Duncan's series, Revolutions. That's very good. Okay. Um, I, I really recommend that one um, Particularly the, the series he did On the French Revolution I think it's just finished The podcast series has just concluded He had the Russian Revolution um, He started off strong and, and, and tailed off In my opinion with with that particular <laughs> series But obviously um, he, he, He's not a Marxist So I'm not surprised But um, in terms of the, the, the facts And bringing it to life um I, I think he's very good and beyond that i listen to silly things i listen to podcasts about uh, video games and uh and sports and, and music and this sort of thing so political podcast i listen to the economist um but on, uh, on this show
0: I, we always promote uh, ghost stories for the end of the world i don't know if you know that podcast nope not familiar with that but one. it's about um right-wing conspiracies in the 20th century very well researched very interesting Mm -hmm. um we i want to ask you one more question just because we did talk about it and people will want to know what's the problem with brian cox in fact two-parter brian cox or is it brian reeves what's what's the guy he they always remind me of the same guy brian cox and the uh the, the the travel guide you know
1: uh, no, nope, not familiar with him, I'm afraid, so I can't answer from I'm back quickly
0: back. Googling him to try and find- I've got, his, I've got his pick, Simon Reeve. Simon Reeve? You don't know Simon Reeve?
1: Hang on. I'm Googling him now.
0: He's got- Oh, he does look the
1: same. He's got my haircut. And likewise. he's got
0: the same, like, affable, like, hey guys, like, the wonder of the world. You know, that kind of sort of yeah. starry-eyed, uh, childlike wonder. Okay, um,
1: so, so so I I, I can't speak to, 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 to this guy because I haven't seen the show. I like his haircut. I'll give him that much. Uh, well, he's I got like
0: a great him. head of hair. I think he's, you know, he's almost 50 or something. You know, he's like oh, wow. one of these people that don't age.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to be one of those. I'm 31 now. We'll see how it goes.
0: Well, you've got um, to like, you know, <laughs> what is it like eat children and stuff and join like a Clinton cult? You know, yeah. I mean, no judgment. It's up to you how, if you wanted to go for it. It's just it's just you know, It takes a lot of time a lot of energy
1: <laughs> uh, Okay but it, it, Brian Cox, so first of all he's the ultimate centrist dad and he's got that irritating smug certitude that what he represents is just the objective unvarnished, non-partisan truth um, and that everybody outside of his perspective as an extremist of one form or another, he openly admits to having voted for all three major parties. And oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, his, his song or song that he worked on was a soundtrack to Blairism, for which uh, I will never forgive him.
0: Um, he only made... do you know, I don't know the backstory about that. What, what that song was written, uh, presumably just because they really had to get that message out there, and then it was like adopted by Blair, or did they actually? Was there more to it?
1: I I don't know the history of how that song uh, came to be, the the, the Blairite anthem, to be honest with you. Um, You'll have to take that up with him. Maybe invite him (laughs) onto the show and ask him. Um, So there's that. He he made some comments about Joe Johnson um, around the time that I was a shop student in the UCU, which, uh, given that he's supposed to be an academic, I thought were pretty objectionable, to say the least. Uh, Didn't show a great deal of solidarity with striking lecturers, we shall say. And scientifically, he says things that are wrong. <laughs> he 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 introduces things. I I I I'm fully in favor of science being presented in a way which is popular and accessible. Uh I think that's very important. But he says things that that veer into the incorrect. Like he had this one episode where he opened by say, if I close my hands and then I open it, then the electrons within it could be anywhere in the universe. No, no, they can be <laughs> light speed is a universal constant. They can be. X number of light seconds away in any given direction. That's just wrong. And it's it's irritating that, um, you know, these these basic uh, inaccuracies are replicated in popular science. I've got a bit of a bugbear about this. My, my wife I used to work for New Scientist magazine, and I, I wrote an article for our theoretical journal, uh, In Defense of Marxism magazine, a couple of months ago where I talk about the, the, the idea of this nonsense that's slipped its way into popular science in the last few years. So I have a bit of an axe to grind with him on that level as well. So don't like him, basically, on any know if, level if we, you can I'm measure. I'm trying
0: to think, was he a centrist Mel over Corbyn? I, I don't remember him saying anything, but there was so much to be said. So many people have lost track
1: i mean probably he 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 hasn't made too many political interventions but all the ones he's made have been poor so i'll uh he's done nothing to disabuse me of my distaste
0: okay i think that's a good place to end it (laughs) thank you very much joe and good luck with the podcast thank you and uh maybe i'll speak to you again soon i'll get, get you back on the show